0: Amen. I'm coming up from the middle this time because I needed the camera angle for the video instead of from the right, and it totally throws me off. Uh, Good to see you guys. Hey, make sure you tell uh, the children's ministry workers how awesome of a job they did, and they do, and they always do because that was just awesome. Oh, thanks. We're going to, yeah, that'll be good. I'll take that. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, otherwise I might. I might. A couple quick announcements before we jump into uh, our text for today. We're actually going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. If you want to go find that, you might have been expecting it's Advent. You might have been expecting one of the Gospels, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning in a little bit. Um, But a couple things. First of all, um, just a reminder, you might have interacted with this before, a bunch of people at Centennial have, but uh, we have a podcast dedicated to exploring spiritual practice. And it's called Centered, and we're in the middle of our third season. We're about five, maybe six episodes in. If you haven't checked that out before, um, I'd encourage you to to go to any podcast app and find Centennial.com. Centered. If you search that, you'll find the Centered podcast. It's a really great way to learn new um, practices of prayer, and I think it's always a good time to do that, but Advent is a great time to say maybe my conversation with God could use a little refreshment at this season, and we hope Centered would be a way to help you uh, expand that. Um, second, uh, I know for many people, uh, December uh, is a time when you think about doing end of your giving, and if you'd like to consider Centennial financially with any end of your gifts, um, December is always a significant season for us, as with many organizations, so just appreciate your ongoing support with, uh, of this church and its ministries. You can always give online, and there's also a box in the back. It's a little box. We don't want it to be really in your face, so you could miss it, but it's right there in the center in the back. Um, So we're in a sermon series, and it is called Home. And here's what we've kind of been saying. Um, We think about, we talk about, we sing songs about, holiday uh, during the holiday season, home is a big theme. But often, when we think about all of the traditions and all of the songs about home, they really fall a little more into the category of cliché or into the category of just happy words. And we want to think about what does it look like for our homes to fully be places of celebrating the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so to continue that theme, uh, I want to do, do a little fill-in-the-blank, and I'm going to ask you to actually shout out some answers. I'm going to actually fill in the blank. Here's, uh, here, here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to hear from you. Whenever I think about Christmas, I think about... Fill in the blank. Friends. Presence. Family. Family. Music. Music. Food. Whenever I think about Christmas, and probably along with all of the... Great. Thank you. Thank you. Good answers. That was good. Um, those were the right answers, by the way. Good job. You know, t- pass the test. You can check that box. Um... Uh, but there's a lot of not just words that come to mind, but there's also probably memories. And I mean, even now, um, you know, getting to watch kids sing might bring all sorts of memories from times that this, uh, you you know, maybe, heck, maybe you even remember when you were a kid and you got up and sang uh, in a Christmas program on church on some Sunday morning. Um, But here's what we've been talking about as we've been exploring the theme uh, home for Christmas. The big idea is that God wants to give us A home that the coming of God to earth as Jesus to be with us is an invitation to receive from God the gift of home. But if we're going to receive that gift, we both need to have some of our broken experiences of home, have those redeemed, and have even the best experiences of home fulfilled by God's full intention. And so we've had four ideas around it. We said God wants to give you a home where you experience new life, self-giving love, safety and protection, and rest. And the last two Sundays we talked about that first one, and this morning we're going to talk about the third one. God wants to give you a home which is a place of safety and protection. And specifically, as we're going to explore in 1 Corinthians, safety and protection from our enemies. And so, you know, happy Advent theme we're going to talk about our enemies this morning. I'm going to ask you a little bit to think about who are your enemies. Do you have any enemies? Just because that's one of the things we all think about uh, around Christmas. Maybe, maybe not. But it brought up this memory I have. Um, a few years ago, I was at the national, uh, the national covenant youth convention, and there was a speaker that got up and he posed this question: What do you think about whenever you think about Christmas? And and he, in a really memorable way, it just it still stands out to my mind. Uh, here's how he filled in that blank. He said, whenever I think about Christmas, I think about destruction. (sighs) Really? You do? Yeah, I think about destruction. More than that, here's what I think, this guy said, and and this is actually what I'm going to explore a little more this morning. Uh, Jesus came to earth because of some certain purposes that God had. Jesus came, Jesus was born to be a destroyer. Let me pray, and then I'm going to read 1 Corinthians. God, this is a bizarre theme, and I hope it's more than just maybe, uh, you know, a memorable little statement that I remember that we might remember, but God, we're going to read your word, and we're going to think about why it is that you, God, came to earth. We're going to think about what it means to anticipate, to look forward to, and to pursue with our lives uh, you, the God who is with us. As we read your word, I pray, God, that that would be... uh, Real in this place, it would be real for each and every one of us, uh, each of every one of our lives. And I pray that this would be a season where the good news of God with us is remembered and engaged and transformational in each of our lives, both today and in the days to come. We pray this in your name, Amen. So um, Jesus came. Jesus was born to be a destroyer. That is a bizarre topic, and this is where we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 27, and just to kind of remind you, here's what we're sort of doing. Um, Jesus was born thousands of years ago, so the first Christmas, the first Advent, all of the anticipation was looking forward to something that had not yet happened, but for us, the anticipation of celebrating Christmas is an anticipation for something that has already happened. In fact, the excitement of celebrating Christ's birth is an excitement we can't have every single day of the year because Christ has already come. And so what we're doing is we're looking both at some of the scriptures that pointed towards Christ's coming from long before he was born, as well as looking at some scriptures that explain the significance of why Christ came. And that's what we're doing this morning. This is a letter written by a guy named Paul to one of the early churches, the church in the city of Corinth. Um, we know it often as 1 Corinthians, but it was originally a letter written by a man, delivered to a whole group of Jesus followers, people who were trying to figure out what does it look like to follow this person named Jesus. And Paul is explaining to them the significance of of Christ's resurrection from the dead. That he died, but afterwards he came back to life. And Paul is really exploring how this idea of new life in Christ is one of the, it, no, actually is the most important reality of who Jesus is and why he came. And in that context, here's what, Jesus, or what Paul says about Jesus' ultimate purposes here on earth. In a sense, we know that the reason he was born in the first place was to accomplish His ultimate purposes. Here's what Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians 15. Then the end will come when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he, Christ, has put everything under his feet. His feet. So according to Paul, one of the ultimate reasons Jesus came was to destroy his enemies. Thus, when I think about Christmas, when I think about why God came to earth, I think about destruction. So here's the question I want to explore together as we unpack this text. Just one question. We're going to answer it in two parts. Um, who are God's enemies? Does God have enemies? And what does it look like to be one of God's enemies? What does Scripture teach us about how do we think about enemies? And maybe if we're thinking about that, uh, I'm going to ask you: do, do you have enemies? I mean, when the word enemy comes to mind, are there people? Don't please don't like shout it out right now. I don't know if we want to do that right now. But um, are there people in your life that when you think about them, maybe you don't, maybe you don't use the word enemy, but you're like, you know what, that person. I I avoid them. It's hard to be around them. It feels like they're more of a burden or a curse in my life than a blessing to be around. I mean, are there any people that if you're honest, maybe there are people that you immediately know that you have a a relationship with. Maybe there are people that are just on the TV or in the news that you don't know at all. Do you have enemies? As we think about that, and and we're also going to unpack it by thinking about, according to Scripture, who are God's enemies? And we're going to answer that... um, In two parts, because as we've been saying all along, Scripture has a trajectory. And so we're going to answer the question, who are God's enemies, by looking first at the story of Joshua, but understanding that the story of Joshua ultimately points towards and lands in the person of Jesus Christ. Who are God's enemies in two parts? First of all, in the story of Joshua, I'm going to suggest um, God's enemies are all of the people who directly oppose God's plans and God's purposes, In specific in the story of Joshua, God said, I'm going to give you a land and make you a great nation. But there's people in the land who are hostile to that plan. They stand in the way. They attack us. They don't follow the ways that God wants us to follow. And so those are God's enemies. We see it throughout the book of Joshua. If you go back and just flip through it, you're going to see references to the enemies on a regular basis. Joshua asked um, this sort of angel of the Lord that spoke to him, Joshua said to that angel, are you for us or are you for your enemies? Because I see you got a big flame and sword and I hope that that flame and sword's on my side, not on the side of my enemies. After the Israelites had lost one of their battles, Joshua said, Israel has been routed by its enemies. And then of course at the very end of the book, after they had successfully moved into the promised land and they were entering into a season of peace and rest, Joshua looked back and said, Not one of Israel's enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all of their enemies into their hands. In the book of Joshua, we see an understanding of God's enemies in a pretty traditional manner, sort of what, what normally comes to mind when I, when I hear this word. And just to kind of throw it up there, the dic- a couple dictionary definitions, um, which I think fit really well the context of Joshua. A person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone, an individual or a group who is forcefully adverse or threatening. This is, I think, what normally would come to mind when we think of an enemy. If if you or I were to think about people that, you know, maybe, again, maybe we don't use the word, but the people that we might, oh, that person, this is kind of the definition. But then, of course, if scripture has a trajectory, and that's where it started with Joshua, We all know, and you probably have some other scriptures that kind of come to your mind, you're like, Jesus really took that, though, and flipped it on its head. Because if in the Old Testament we see God's people waging war against God's enemies and their enemies, Jesus takes that idea and does something absolutely different, completely flips it upside down. Um, A lot of different places you could look at it, but one of the most famous is in Jesus' longest sermon, his longest central teaching, usually called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, You can read about it in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. uh, But here's one section in the middle. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This teaching, of course, coming right after uh, Jesus said, if your enemy strikes you on the face, you should turn the other cheek also. If you're asked to walk a mile, you should go too. All of these uh, being teachings that, for many people in the history of Christianity, has been uh, a foundational reason to believe that maybe Christians should never wage war of any sort. Maybe Christians should be completely peaceful and pacifistic in all ways. These are the teachings that not all Christians agree that's the teaching of them, but many traditions say for this reason, yes, in the Old Testament there was war, but after Christ there should never be any form of violence at the hands of a Christian at all. And whether or not that's where you land on it, it's abundantly clear that what Jesus is calling his people to hear is a radically different way to think about and more importantly, to interact with anybody on earth that we might call our enemies. Sure enough, the teaching that Christ gave on how to think about these people who are hostile to us uh, was so significant that we see it show up in all, uh, many of the other New Testament writings, many of the other writings of Jesus' followers that have made their way into the New Testament. I'm gonna look at another scripture um, from Paul that I think really uh, lands the plane on if Joshua was the beginning point for this exploration and Jesus is the landing point, Paul gives us some reflections on what he learned from Jesus and his disciples. It comes from Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to try and jump there. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Paul says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And you read this and you're like, yeah, all right, strong in the Lord. I like strength. We like power. I like mighty power. I want that. If I'm thinking about my enemies, I want to have strength and power on my side. And then he unpacks and he's like, okay, what does this look like, Paul? Tell me how to be strong in the Lord. I want to be strong in the Lord. I want to know how to do that. He unpacks it for us. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Let me read that again. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Why is it that in the Old Testament, um, God's people waged war against their enemies and in the New Testament, Jesus said to love and forgive and pray for your enemies. And just to be clear, and he said those who persecute you and persecution throughout the early church was at risk of death. So we're not talking about just like, oh, he said something mean to me. We're talking about serious a uh, 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 danger on behalf of Jesus' followers. Well, Paul here explains what I think Jesus does in completely flipping on its head our understanding of how Jesus came to destroy his enemies, because ultimately, what Paul is saying is, according to the gospel, once Christ has come to earth and done his work, and Jesus did his work, we know, for all people, That means that if there's somebody that's the greatest, best, most loving, kind, caring person, Jesus died for that person. If we can think of the person who's the most evil, awful, terrible, just not deserving of forgiveness person, Jesus died for that person. In a sense, I could take Paul's teaching and say when we think about how to interact with the world around us, when we think about this question, who are our enemies and who are God's enemies, we could summarize it this way. If it has flesh and blood, it is not the enemy. If it's a human, then there's only one way to think about it. It's a creation by God, one of his precious, purposeful creations. If it was made by God, then it is something we look at and say, that right there is of high, high value, something to be celebrated and cared for and protected, something to be sacrificed on behalf of. If it has flesh and blood, if it's another human being, it is definitely not. My enemy. Okay, hold on Carl. Hold on a second, Carl. Um, have you met some of the hard people that I have to work with in my life, you might be saying? I mean, Carl, that's a nice, I mean, that sounds nice, right? You're the preacher, you to stand up. You, you can say stuff. That sounds nice, but have you, I mean, do you know just how hard some of the circumstances are in my life or take it out of our life? Carl, are you aware of some of the stuff going on in the world around us? I mean, are you aware of just how brutal And violent human beings can be? Heck, we actually even know at other places in the epistle to, in in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he actually talks about people who are doing harm to, and in some ways are enemies of, the cause of the gospel. They directly work against it. So here's kind of the final little distinction I want to make before I I try to turn to, Carl, what are we really going to do with this? What are we really going to do with this? Um, If it's true that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces. And yet, it's also true that humans do things that you, like, that, but Carl, that's, that's not a good thing. That sounds like an enemy sort of thing to do. Here's the distinction that I want to make, and not me, but I think Scripture says God would have us make in our minds the difference, uh, you know, this, this, this distinction we need to make as we live and try to be faithful in a really kind of broken, messed up world. Um, we see people do all sorts of bad stuff. We see people still act in contradiction to act against the plans and purposes of God. What that means is they can in fact be enemies in their actions. In what they are doing, they are an enemy and that they're opposed to. They're acting against. They're trying to stop good things from happening. But they are not. Humans are not ever enemies of God or enemies of us in their nature. And what do I mean by nature? I mean in that they were made by God for his good purposes. And I think you actually know this intuitively because there's this, there's this phrase that we sometimes say, you've probably said it about yourself, you've probably heard somebody say it like them, it's just, it, it always comes up when, like, when we do something surprising. The phrase is, oh, well, that wasn't like me, have you ever had this moment where you're like, this is how I like to think I act and behave and speak and interact with people, but sometimes I do something completely different? Memory that came to my mind, I've, I've shared the story here before, but it was just, it was a little while into the beginning of the COVID pandemic when everything was on lockdown, and, you know, it was like super high stress and everything. And it was late one night and I decided I was going to go out for a run around the little park by my house. And I'm out on a run and out of the dark... A dog comes charging me off leash. Now, I've had that happen a fair number of times before. It's always a little scary, and I often will like, ah! you know, like Woof, just jump. But on this particular night, at this particular time, when I was, you know, it was a pretty stressful season. This dog came charging out of nowhere, and I completely lost it. And I found myself starting to. I could see like a shadow of a person that I think was calling to the dog or something. I could see kind of what must have been the dog owner. And I found myself starting to angrily shout at this person in the... What are you doing? Let your dog off! I I completely lost it. It may may be... I don't know if pastors are supposed to say this from up front, but I may have even heard some words of profanity come out of my mouth. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I may have. It's, you know, there was no corroboration, but I got home and I was talking to Micken about it, and I couldn't help but think to myself, ooh, that wasn't like me. I'm not prone to screaming and yelling, especially not at strangers in the park. You ever had that kind of moment where you're like, ooh, I'm hearing myself say something. I'm watching myself do something that's not like me. The Apostle Paul, again, Uh, had this very experience, and here's how he explained it. This is now his letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I was in the park And a dog came out of nowhere. It didn't bite me. It stopped short. They always stopped short. They just caught me off guard. And I found myself doing something. I heard myself saying something that is not what I want to do. It is not how I want to speak. And yet I was doing it. And Paul says that is proof that there is a sin that lives inside of me, can even influence my actions and my words and behaviors and comes out. Of me, which is a couple things. First, it's an encouragement to remember whatever sin you might see in your life, whatever self-destructive or others' destructive habits or actions you might struggle with from time to time. It's a reminder that the power of God with us, the power of Christ can free you from that sin. That is not you in your core nature, that is sin living in you. And that is good, good news. But it also is a reminder that when we see other people saying things, doing things, hurtful things, destructive things, we find ourselves going, how in the world could somebody do something so cruel as that? The same grace we extend to ourselves, we extend to others because we're reminded that that person who's doing something against us, that person is not your enemy. Sin is the only enemy. For as Paul said in our first scripture, for Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ came, Jesus was born onto this earth, because this earth is plagued, polluted, infected, completely broken by the power of sin. And the proof of sin's power is found in the reality, the ongoing, overwhelming reality of death. But the only reason death is a a reality is because sin is still a reality. So when Christ has finally and fully destroyed sin, he will then finally and fully destroy death itself. Which means bring it as always back to you and I and Christmas. What do you think your move and my move should be? Um, so here's, here's just the general idea. As we're thinking about Advent, we're halfway through, we've got a couple weeks left. Like I've said every, you know, every Sunday so far, we're, we're probably going to have some, uh, you know, maybe a party at work, maybe a party at your home, maybe you've got friends coming over, maybe you've got family coming into town, uh, we're going to exchange gifts, we're going to have meals, we're going to listen to music. Um, As you go about all the things that you're going to go about for the rest of this Christmas season, what does it look like to make this Christmas (laughs) about destruction? What does it look like? One of the um, phrases that we hear around this church, but all the more around our um, fellowship of churches, the Evangelical Covenant churches, we say, we're people who want to join God in God's mission. And God's mission, the reason Christ came to earth, is to destroy sin and death. How might we join God in seeking to destroy, not people, not his precious creation, not those for whom he gave his life, but rather join God in seeking to destroy the powers of evil who are God's true and ultimate enemy. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, here's a thought. If sin and death are actually the ultimate enemies, then prayer and the scripture are the ultimate weapons. I've asked it before, but during this Advent season, as you open presents, as you gather for meals, as you do the decorations, how do we make prayer and scripture an integral part of all of the Advent celebrations we're already engaging in? Why? Because every time we make the Word of God the guide to our lives, every time we make prayer an ongoing, everyday conversation with God, something we can do formally with lists and books and, and kind of purpose, something we can do informally with simply the longings of our heart that we can't even put into words, how do we make prayer and Scripture the guide, the foundation, the center of all of our lives? Because every time we do that, we are joining God in trying to destroy the ultimate enemy which is the power of sin at work in our lives and at work in the world what might this look like uh in our home uh if the theme is home oh i thought i thought it was just title slide um that's all right that's good um There's. I was. I was kind of trying to think. Okay, Carl, how are you going to land the plane? How do we really bring this home? What's the? What's what's maybe something uh, a fresh thought to really apply to this? And um, I read an article this week that really grabbed my attention. Um, So I was thinking about this question. I was thinking about Advent. I'm thinking about you you know we're doing all the things. You've got you know Christmas cards. Some of you guys already got your Christmas cards mailed out. Well done. Uh, You know it's it's good for you. Um, You know, so we're in the middle of all that And I read this article And it kind of stops me in my tracks And the headline of the article And mind you, this is a Christian website That I look at often It's a Christian author, a guy who is a pastor um, Who currently sort of does teaching And and writing and speaking for, for pastors and church leaders And the title of the article was Stop going to church I said, huh All right, you got my attention You know, I I don't expect you to tell me to stop going to church because, you know, you you like church. You you talk about it often. I know this author. Stop going. So I'm reading the article, and the article is going on and on about how you know. We live in this consumer society where people sort of, you know, this this idea of going to church has kind of got conflated with, it's almost like going to the movies, right? If I go to the movie, I get to pick whichever movie I want. And if I don't want to go, then I just don't go. I'll go to a different theater that has the movie I want. Or, you know, if I am going to go to the movies, I'm only going to go to the kind of movie that I want to go to. And we're, we're familiar with this idea that in our world, wherever we go, whatever we do, we can go there to get whatever it is that we want in whatever genre or sub-genre or, you know, niche group that you could possibly imagine. That's what we've become used to. And so the author is reflecting on this idea that that seeps into the church as well. And that's what caused him to say, I think you should stop going to church. And he offered an alternative. He said, if, if, if our consumer society sort of infects us with this idea that I can go to a building and hopefully I get whatever I like, Um, here's the antidote. Stop going to church. Why? Instead, be the church. Because, in fact, we don't really have good biblical basis to say that going somewhere is church. In fact, the only real thing we have, we learned it when we were kids, the church is not a building where people go to pray, but the church is God's people. I don't remember what's the second half of the ride. The church is the... But whatever. Whatever. You know what I'm getting at. Uh, The church is God's people. This building is only a church because the church gathers here. If we all got up and left and sold it, it wouldn't be a church anymore. Do you know why? Because the church would have left the building. Heck, in a sense, every Sunday at the end of the service when you stand up and leave, the church has just left the building now we do have to we do have to think about this because scripture also tells us it's good to gather it's right to gather christ modeled that in his own life throughout the rest of the scripture we're told it is good do not neglect gathering for worship for prayer for teaching of god's word do not neglect doing that the church god's people should gather to do that so uh we see that the gathering the church is commanded to gather And that's part of the reason why, you know, even though we know it's not true, we still kind of think about this building somehow as the church in a special way. But here's the thing to be reminded of. Um, The church is commanded to gather, but even when we scatter, we are still the church. Some of you, I know, know this, some of you might not. uh, The mission statement of this church used to be gathered to grow, scattered to serve. And both of those activities, gathering and scattering, are equally people being the church. So here's, here's where I'm going to try to land the plane. Um, we're thinking about Advent. We're going to have people over. Maybe you are going to hang out with neighbors. Maybe you are going to, you know, I don't know. Think about the things you're going to do. Think about the people you're going to interact with. Think about the plans and the traditions and the celebrations you've got um, prepared. Here's a thought. If the church is God's people, whether or not they're gathered or scattered, and here's a thought of how we can join God in God's mission, his Advent season. Um, Whenever someone comes into your home, they have just come to church. Whenever you just go into a neighbor's home, you have just brought the church into somebody else's home. Whenever you have a short interaction with somebody in the checkout line of the grocery store, in the cubicle next to yours, at work, while you're on the phone, in the car, every time you're interacting with somebody, that person has just been to church. What would it look like this Advent to say, every single moment that I share of my home life is a moment I am being the church, for the world around us. And if my home could be a place where I do battle against God's ultimate enemies and I don't do battle against other humans like is so common in the world around us, that, I believe, would be one of the most profound ways to celebrate a God who chose to come to earth riding not on a war horse, but riding on a donkey in Jerusalem, born not with great fanfare like the Roman emperors of his time, but rather born in the most humble in lowly and vulnerable and weak possible ways, an infant laid in a manger, unknown by and large to the world around him. This Advent, let's join God in his work of battling his real enemies, not, not by making it all about going to a building, but by making it about being God's church in every single thing we do. Would you pray with me? Uh, God, as always, we, um, we confess. We confess that our desire to follow you too often gets um, mixed up with all the competing desires and messages and pressures and influence in the world around us. We confess, God, that often um, we do want to make church just about what we want, the way we want it. We've become so comfortable with that. And God, ultimately we confess that this sin we read about in the Bible, we do in fact see it in our lives. We hear it on our lips. We enact it with our deeds. We confess that we have sinned both against you, God, and against others. But God, we're reminded of the good news that you have come to destroy sin. Thank you for the promise that in Christ all of our sins have been forgiven if we will simply receive it from you. And as we receive that good news, God, help us to make our homes places of scripture and prayer so that we might join you in doing battle against your true enemies, the sin of this world, and creating community with any and all of your creation.